welcome everyone. Thank you so much for joining Learning Together, Navigating the COVID-19 Pandemic. OptimizeRx is honored to facilitate this timely conversation with some of nursing's brightest minds and leading organizations. Our panel will be answering questions at the end of the presentation, and you can also email us at webinars at optimizerx.com, and we'll be happy to direct your questions to the appropriate person. Our moderator today is OptimizerX's Vice President of Customer Strategy and Engagement, Rebecca Love. Rebecca is a master's educated nurse who has spent her career being on the frontline and healthcare IT. She is a president and founding member of the Society of Nurse Scientists, Innovators, Entrepreneurs, and Leaders, Sanseal, of which Molly, Kiem, and Kelly are also founding members. And Rebecca will just do us the honor of introducing all our amazing panelists today. Rebecca, all yours. Thank you, everybody, and thank you for joining us today. Um, we know that this is an unprecedented time, not only for our generation, but for the world. And today it's an honor and a pleasure to bring with you three of the leading nursing executives across the United States from three different healthcare verticals. I'd like to introduce you to Molly McCarthy, who is the National Director for US Health and the Chief Nursing Officer of Microsoft. Next, we have Kelly Robke, who is the Vice President of Clinical Thought Leadership for BD. And lastly, but not leastly, Kim Nadell, who is the director of the Center of Innovations in Care Delivery for Massachusetts General Hospital. Ladies, it is a pleasure to have you with us today. As the day starts on, we're going to go into five pre-selected questions that we have screened with, the can uh, with our panel today so that we can have an interesting and engaged conversation regarding how we are navigating the COVID-19 pandemic. Our first question is going to come around the ideas. Oh, we're going to move right to it. Our first question is going to come, how is your business responding to COVID-19 to help frontline providers and patients during this crisis? Kim, because you are on the front lines, I believe that people are going to want to hear what is going on in the hospitals, how are you navigating this, and give us a little bit of insight around what's going on within the hospital system today. Um, thank you, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be here today. Um, I do want to say that I play a very small role, I feel like, in all of this and really want to, you know, give a shout out to all the frontline caregivers, the incident command uh, people from all over the institutions trying to understand the trajectory of this virus um, and just working around the clock. This is very challenging because it continues to change and change so quickly. And so one of the questions comes up is how do we keep our staff informed, educated, and retrained if necessary? And so what the institution has done is actually just shut down all of email, which is lovely for us, by the way. And the only email that will come out is anything to do with um, the coronavirus. So people can pay attention and that's all that they're reading. There's also centralized places where all the information exists and we call it a polo. Um, and then we can go there with links to the CDC and things like that. But to um, really um, respect social distancing, we had to mobilize very quickly and choose which staff can actually re, uh, work at home. And that took a lot of IT and toolkits and training. And in fact, one great story is our medical interpreters who were interpreting from home with video-based or any other tools, that they actually were able to um, do more interpretation. Because if you consider that when they're here live, they have to run from one building to the next. So taking that away, they were able to do a lot more of that. Also, um, we have mobilized very quickly. I think staff is very anxious that are here. And so with the shortage of some supplies and having to train them in the reuse of personal protection, we've mobilized infection disease fellows who are actually going onto the units and, and answering questions for staff, so in real time. Um, the chief nurse just put out a, a um, a message today through video saying I wish I could be there rounding with you because that's what she usually does and just giving them some hope and and just telling them how proud they are. Um, let's see what else. Uh, there's so much that's going on. Oh, and there's 
you know, we're also looking at, you know, the, um, the staff's mental well-being. And so putting out, you know, relaxation tapes. Uh, we're also going to communicate a lot of the good things that people are doing for each other. For example, on my way home the other night, there was a nurse. She took out all, she took two phlebotomy trays and then went and got coffee for all her colleagues in the, as nurses do. <laughs> and carrying all the coffee. So we're trying to highlight some of the things that people are doing to care for each other. Um, the, we have now closed visitors off to coming in, which I think has been a really great help. Um, so I think people are less anxious so that you know visitors are not also bringing in, bringing in infections. Let's see what else I can tell you. So that's the staffing bucket. And, and tell us just if you could give everybody a summary, like what is the size of the hospital? How many beds do you have? Can you give us a little bit of insight on what is sure. the current situation? So we have a thousand beds. Uh, so we're really looking at surge capacity and, you know, especially the units that have ventilators and making sure that there are enough. We're testing people uh, in multiple places. We've set up multiple clinics for respiratory illnesses and trying to staff those as well as, you know, we have staff on furlough and how do you, how do you navigate all of that and how do you mobilize more of the workforce? There's a lot of concerns around it, but so far we're holding steady. Um, and so we're looking at now at our ventilators and re giving refresher courses for those nurses that have left uh, critical care so that they can come back in and help. And even reaching out to perhaps retiring nurse, nurses who have retired and are willing to come back in. Well, this is an incredible time and I mean an unprecedented and for thinking ahead to sit there and say, how do you resupport your uh, workforce? This is going to be critical. And so, you know, actually, I think that's a good transition. Molly, you know, as, as he is talking on what is Microsoft doing at the, during this pandemic that you know can sort of answer some of these crises for both patients and providers? What are, what are you guys doing at Microsoft? Sure. Well, thanks, Rebecca, and it's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and, and tell you a little bit about um, what, we've, what we've been doing at Microsoft. Um, and really just a shout out to everyone on the front lines, quite frankly. Um, my license is still Kurt in DC, so call me up. I'm happy to help out. Um, maybe not in the ICU, but um, I, you know, I, I think there are two primary areas that we're looking at right now. Um, the first is a COVID-19 healthcare bot. And the second one is around virtual visits via a booking app in our Teams platform. And I'll talk first about the healthcare bot. Um, this is a service that we're doing for free for six months right now. Um, it's an AI-powered, HIPAA-compliant, conversational healthcare experience um, that really helps alleviate some of the inbound questions and telephone calls. So for example, actually just within the past 30 minutes, CDC launched this health bot on there. Uh, website. So if you go to CDC, you can actually click on uh, the assessment tool and it will take you through a, a series of questions. Um, and it was originally developed uh, with Providence St. Joseph and Microsoft Research. Uh, uh, as you know, Providence had the first coronavirus patient. Um, and, and so if you go to their website, you can see it uh, there too. You know, we're, we're working round the clock, quite frankly, with providers to get this up and running. I'm currently working with a few different children's hospitals. I've been on a call all day. Um, and really that's to help alleviate, like I mentioned before, some of the uh, incoming traffic to to the hospital, whether it be, you know, patients and families or even, quite frankly, healthcare workers. Um, and I'll give you an example. So Providence St. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Providence St. Joseph went live last week. They've had a total of 1.4 million uh, total chat messages within the past week. That is impressive. Um, oh my goodness, Molly. That yeah. is a high number. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah, no, it is. It's crazy. Um, and we've, we're, we're doing this, you know, outside the USA, uh, the USA. I know in Finland, we launched one there and was uh, 709,000 messages. So really looking to make this available to anyone who, who needs assistance. Um, and we're, you know, like I mentioned before, it was going on all last weekend. Um, people are coming online very, very quickly. I know that partners, Haim, where you are, Mass General, uh, that one went live today as well. So um, a lot of work to be done. And then, of course, with our teams, just 
virtual visits, the ability to do um, video, et cetera, um, you know, in, in place of maybe uh, just an additional telehealth opportunity. Thank you, Molly. I think that sounds very exciting. And congratulations on the speed to getting that out and deployed. And so, Kelly, then, if we're looking at, you know, we're hearing from health IT and we're hearing how on the front lines, what is BD doing at this point in time? And how have you been looking at your business model and, and as deploying resources to providers and, and patients? So our company is, uh, first of all, Rebecca, thank you for having us. We're super excited to be a part of this. Um, our company is committed to advancing the world of health. This has always been our mission and our vision. And there's no time like the present. Right now, we are working actively with governments, with associations, with our customers. We're really hearing four key needs that we align nicely to and we're, we're mobilizing our resources towards. That's diagnostics, how we're diagnosing um, the disease, um, how we're processing that. Um, it's also specimen collection, how we're going about actually collecting the specimens. That's number two. Um, the third is patient care delivery, and this runs the gamut. Um, we do have um, expertise and really wanted to, um, to emphasize our excellence in medication delivery because that's such a fundamental part of what nurses do. We know that's the second um, most frequent activity that nurses perform on the front lines in terms of care delivery, second only to documentation. And then last but not least, we're very interested in the data around surveillance of the activities that are needed of the supply chain which when we talk about supply chain um, in business, um, we all know what we're, we're talking about in terms of supply and, and just in time. But from a clinician standpoint, I think it's important to clarify, this is around being able to support compliance with care, right? So ensuring that you have the supplies, the medication, what you need to deliver the care that's ordered, knowing that that ordered care is going to change over time, particularly in the environment that we're operating in. I would also say, Rebecca, we are emphasizing and really focusing on supporting the needs in the ICU. This is something we're hearing from our customer groups, from our organizations and from government that is really an area where we need to focus right now, but we are actively and um, proactively engaging in terms of how this could change over time because we've already seen several iterations in terms of needs, in terms of hotspots like Molly mentioned, and in terms of just the need of the enterprise um, as he indicated at Mass General. So those are a few things that we're doing and focusing on in the weeks ahead, knowing that we might need to pivot and adjust based on how this um, evolves and emerges. You know, I think you're absolutely right. I think this is, and you've both spoken to it, this is an unprecedented time. We're unsure of what's coming next and we're pivoting and we're acting very different than we usually do in our, in our situations. And, you know, Kelly, you brought up the issue of supply chain. And although that's not where our next question was going, I think this is a topic forefront of all of our minds. We're hearing across the country struggling issues with supply chains and getting access to the resources that we need to both be on the front lines to protect basically our frontline caregivers. Um, and, and the challenges that are basically around that everything from testing an issue right now to basically getting our PPE equipment where they are and and questions that I have is and how are you looking at that um, within your current organization as to some of the challenges that we're seeing in the marketplace what is what has been brought to your attention and, and any ideas of, of what the solutions might look like coming from your organization I think the challenges are around how care um, and the delivery of care is emerging we're hearing um, we're hearing from customers that they're repurposing some of their rooms for example an OR might be repurposed into ICU beds. so we want to make sure that we're able to support that necessity and I think it's just leveraging and really maximizing the benefit of infrastructure that's already in place for example, our medication management system does an excellent job of not only ensuring that medications are where they need to be based on the reports that are generated from that data, but can also help pharmacy predict trends so that nurses have those medications available to support that compliance with care that I was just talking about. Another really cool thing that we um, really want to emphasize and, and extend to our nursing community during this time of uncertainty, like you said, is we want to be able to support bedside care as much as possible. So we're looking at how we can maximize the nurse's time at the bedside, how we can minimize the time spent away from the bedside on non-essential tasks, because we know that's where risk can occur. Um, but those are a few things that, that are top of mind for us right now. 
And I really appreciate that. And Molly, I know that um, Microsoft you're, you're, uh, has a lot to do with looking into predictives using technology to sort of do some predictive analytics. And, you know, to sort of Kelly's point that, you know, supply chain and everything there, how, how are you guys looking at predictive analytics at this point in time that can sort of help develop the scenarios we're going forward to sort of look at solving some of these solutions? What are you guys seeing in your, in your specific area of business? Sure. So, you know, a couple of different things. One is, you know, we do have an interactive map that allows the users to see the number of coronavirus cases worldwide by country and state. But I think um, where we're really looking to improve with supplies is working with some of the manufacturers um, around predictive analytics and truly understanding where the hotspots are, um, where are they in relation to the, the, the curve of coronavirus in terms of number of cases, and really working with them to help predict um, manufacturing needs. Quite frankly, we're working with a large group in Australia right now, uh, and, and really throughout the world. Um, so that's you know, our capabilities with the health IT and the analytics is really our wheelhouse. Um, so that's where we're trying and, and hoping to contribute. Yeah, thank you, Molly. And Holly and Hiam, you're on the front lines. I know that we're dealing with this issue of supply chain in there. And so the question is, is what are you seeing? And tell me where you think we're going with this. How are you dealing with the challenges that we're seeing? And, and why is this so unprecedented in terms of supply chain disruption that we that that we haven't seen? Can, can you give us some insight from the hospital's perspective of what's going on? Sure. So I think first is that we have to look internally. I think there were there were supplies that we didn't think were there when we realized that the research, for example, had to sort of slow down and unless it was critical, was actually shutting down. Um, and our colleagues there said, look, we've got sanitizers, we've got PPE, so let's cohort all that and send it out. And then just really being conservative and really educating on the reuse, which I think makes people nervous, but I think the more we're educating, the more the staff is feeling safer because we are sort of at, you know, we're just sort of our hands are tied if we don't get any of this, this, uh, you know, the supplies in. And as we, as we test more patients, we need more supplies. So it's this domino effect. Um, and then the other thing that we never think about is, you know, we need to test more. What's our testing capabilities? And the hospitals are now, you know, went and um, received FDA approval very quickly to be able to increase the testing capacity even here. Um, and but then you have to think about, oh, my goodness, now the lab staff and things. Everything has a domino effect. And it's, it's, it's pretty interesting when you really have to think through all of this. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it's just been very challenging, but, uh, you know, the good news is there are other resources coming around and saying, look, you know, we can help you with this, or let's devise a mechanism where we can create something else. This is when innovation really happens. We can create this plastic form to go over the res respirators so we can, you know, extend their life. Um, and so things like that. So it's, it's, it's just, it's nerve wracking, but I, I think that people are really coming together and it's nice to see even the communities coming together, manufacturers say, look, you know, we want to help. What can we do? Um, so I think that's where we're going to be going. You know, I think actually you just segmented perfectly too into our next question, everybody. So Mark, you want to pull that forward. And as you know, I think the question is, is, you know, you were just saying that we're innovating by the, the time and we're looking at different organizations and way of doing business. How are you guys actually looking at digital communication? At, you know, this, the ability to do digital communications 20 years ago didn't exist. And the world of digital communication is something that's still, I think, relatively it's being used by the average person, but healthcare has sometimes been a little bit resistant to, to some of the change of those. So, you know, Kelly, when we're looking at digital communication, you were just talking about the access to medications and things like this. How is digital communication helping transform your business to help the frontline providers or basically the way that now that all of us are being regulated to be home, how are you using this and what do you see the role in, in, in your business line? 
I think first it has first and foremost it has to make sense in the patient care continuum and the activities and the workflows of what we do in care delivery. And I worked as an oncology nurse at MD Anderson Cancer Center, also labor and delivery at Piedmont and Memorial Hermann Hospitals. Um, but I can tell you the common denominator there during my nursing practice was the time spent with your patient and the information that you receive and need to send are critical. And once you leave that room um, or even the unit, you are really um, setting yourself up for disruptions in care, some of those can, can really present risk. So I, I go back to time spent at the bedside, maximizing those activities that are most meaningful to nursing um, practice excellence and also positive patient outcomes. So utilizing the information that's available on an app or on a laptop or desktop to plan activities once you leave that room is really something that we feel like is key. Interoperability is a big buzzword for what we do, um, but being able to safeguard, not only safeguard the activities that can impact patient safety during IV medication delivery is also something that is very top of mind, but also the added benefit of being able to auto document, because like I said before, the only um, activity that is ahead of percentage of time nurses spend on medication um, activities is documentation. So those two things, I think, um, between time spent at the bedside, information that's available. And let me also say, it needs to be in meaningful, digestible chunks. You don't want war and peace necessarily when all you wanna do is cue a medication um, for when you actually go out um, to the med station. I, I think also interoperability is key. And these are things that we excel at and, and just really emphasize the necessity of, of the infrastructure that's available today and making sure you're optimizing and, and and utilizing what's available and also practicing at the top of your license. I love that. And, and Molly, I, you know, I think, uh, you know, Kelly speaks to the issues of interoperability and digital communication, keeping the, uh, the, the nurse by the bedside. I, I think we can all agree that as nurses, keeping the, uh, the nurse by the bedside and taking care of the patient is important. How are you, what are you seeing in this entire and what's important to you as we're talking about interoperability and, and the access to digital communication? How, how are you guys looking at that in, in your works? Well, um, thank you for that question. I think, you know, recently as of, um, you know, we are an open, we, we are an open platform. Our goal is to allow that data to flow um, bi-directionally. So I wanted to, to mention that um, and very supportive of the announcements that came out. Uh, I think it was last week. My weeks are kind of going to coming together right now, um, but I, you know I think in in healthcare and I say this all the time, even in technology, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, it really comes down to communication and collaboration, whether that's among the care team members, among the patients and families, etc. But but the ability to communicate um, quickly, rapidly, um, to the point of care is, is so important and. You know, I think uh, looking back at 26 years ago when I first started in healthcare, I think a lot of the problems still stem from communication and collaboration. So that's why we, we uh, at Microsoft really pushing the communication tools, teams, obviously, um, just really not only with, with um, you know, through the, the health bot and, and, and that in terms of patient facing, but then thinking about um, you know, Microsoft helping remote work workers throughout around the globe, quite frankly, regardless of healthcare, but everyone facing the crisis right now, the social distancing, et cetera. Um, and so we have a couple different employee facing solutions through our Teams platform. One is just a crisis communication application. The second is a company com uh, communicator app. Um, obviously, enabling work at home and, you know, I've been lucky enough, really, quite frankly, over the past 15 years to be able to, to uh, work remotely in some way, shape or form if I'm not in with hospitals and healthcare systems. Um, so really, that is the area that we're focusing in. And we've been focusing in on that. I just think with the current environment that we're in right now, 
it has just um, accelerated the adoption process, quite frankly. Um, I know I've, I've been reading a ton around this, even just with telemedicine. I remember going into a hospital a few years ago, uh, specifically NICU, where, where the IT group said, you know what, the, the families and patients are ready for the telemedicine, but the nurses and physicians put a big sheet over the, um, <laughs> the uh, wheeling you know, device that does the telemedicine and put it in a corner. Um, and so I've seen just a lot more acceptance of telemedicine in the past two weeks, quite frankly, and it's, you know, by necessity. So, um, you know, it's been exponential in terms of the uh, spread of the virus, but also the, the acceptance and adoption of digital technology. No, I think you're absolutely right. The future of work is going to be irreparably changed as we've been looking at what's going on in the last few weeks. And we'll see how that goes forward. And, you know, he, I'm going back to the hospital, as you said, you moved a lot of your workforce off of to be able to work from home because of this social distancing thing. How are you going to use digital communication? As you said, you've ended email so that people can keep focused. Where are you finding that it's been helpful? Where are you finding that it's been challenging? I believe that I saw some executive orders that are freeing up the, the responsibility for um, documentation during this time because of the, the, the evolving nature of what we're dealing with. So what are you seeing in this space? And is there is there almost a move away from digital communication or in certain areas? And is there a strengthening of digital communication in others? And, and how, how is that happening at the front lines right now? Well, I think going back to what Kelly said, I think we're all humans. And even when we're here at the hospital, digital communication is happening because we're not coming together. And people have come out and said, we really, we really miss everybody. We understand, but I miss you at the meeting. Um, so I, I think that we'll have to continue. But let me talk a little bit about the patients. And, and Kelly has, has made this point, which is hitting home. And, and so patients are very anxious right now and we need to communicate. And telemedicine is wonderful because they can actually see you. You can be calming, you can answer all their questions, et cetera. So for ambulatory, we're doing a lot of those virtual visits. We have you know, urgent care on demand um, and things like that to calm people down. But we're still needing nurses to, to um, staff the phone banks as people are calling. It's not just our patients, but the community. So other providers that need help with testing, et cetera. And then for inpatient, now that more and more the patients are isolated, it's pretty lonely for them. And so what we've done is put, uh, it just went live today, which is putting iPads on an IV pole, and then the nurse can speak to the patient. So what we're trying to do is cluster what we're doing when we go into a patient that's on isolation, say, okay, I'm giving the meds, what else can I do at this point? Let's do vital signs and everything else we can do. Outside of that is that you can speak to them and they can see your face. And so that has, uh, we'll see how it goes, but I think it's going to really work because then the, the, you know, the patient won't think that they're alone. You know, you guys are, you're, you're innovating, um, you're MacGyvering by bedside, which we say is what nurses yeah. do constantly, right? We, we joke that, you know, give a nurse a roll of tape and stand back and watch what they can accomplish. And I think all of us have done that in our careers, right? We're nurses that are not necessarily in traditional roles of nursing. And the questions that I, you know, that I have for you guys, as I hear you speaking, is that you're, you're working very fast, you're working very creatively. And so how are you seeing that in your own business model right now, that things are changing in a way that they weren't changing before? Are you having more flexibility to do things that you didn't think? And as opposed to evidence-based practice or research that's going on because let's be honest the changes in the PPPE requirements all were based on evidence-based practice but suddenly due to these shortages of supplies we're, we're basically doing things differently in the moment and how are you using innovation at this point in time to sit there and say okay business is how we knew it is not the way that we're going to be able to operate today and you know um you know him i'm going to go back to you first with that question because you mentioned in your last statement you brought it up again you're 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 doing things differently how is that being accepted and, and how is that different than before well i think many people are now really open to how can we do this differently i mean look if you look at south korea where they had the phone booths and there's they're actually seeing and testing patients that way um, and one of my colleagues reached out and said look i you know we might be able to do this here and we're going to start looking into it um, and so I, I think the question is, what can we do differently where we massively put out all these virtual visits and working from home and, you know, trying with patients to see. So I, I think that we have to, we don't have a choice. And I think that's what's helping with innovation. 
Love it. Kelly, how are you seeing it in your spot right now? Like, what are you seeing your business doing differently that, you know, if it wasn't the current environment that we were in, things would not be able to do it. Are there, are there lifting of restrictions in the way that your business is able to operate to allow you to operate faster? Has the red tape been removed in areas that prevent you from doing business the way you were? Are there any examples that you have that you can share with us that has occurred in the course of the last two weeks that normally would never have, have happened in, in a typical environment in healthcare? We've always had a close relationship with our customers. We want to be engaged. We want a channel of communications. We also reach out to the broader clinician and IT community, um, whether they're our customers or not. We feel like part of ensuring the success of patient outcomes is engaging, supporting, and reacting to um, and collaborating with um, the overall healthcare community. So I, I don't want to say it's more of the same, but I think everyone on this panel is aware BD has been exceptionally um, focused on supporting the needs of nursing innovation. And what I've seen is um, the efforts that we've worked on over the last two years to really prioritize nursing empowerment, nursing innovation, nursing education, and partnerships with nurses um, come to fruition and really serves to expedite many of the things we're talking about here. I think another thing that I would mention as well is that we are actively engaging with organizations that again, we've aligned with in support of healthcare innovation. The third thing that I would leave you with, um, Rebecca, in response to this question and how we're expediting it is we're continuing to fortify the necessity of nurses being leaders in innovation. And that isn't just in traditional nursing leadership roles. We love that. We love nurses as CNOs, CNIOs, um, VP of patient care delivery, and also leaders in, in innovation centers. But we want frontline nurses to be leaders as well. You mentioned MacGyvering earlier. Absolutely, that needs to continue. We need to get nurses' voices at the table leading the efforts and also leading in areas of subject matter expertise. So these are things that we've already been doing, but now it's needed more than ever. Absolutely. And, and Molly, I know that the question is slightly different on how your innovating red tape's been taken away, but also, you know, Kelly brings up a great point. You know, how, how are we going to see those things and, and nursing to basically get a seat at the table? And Molly, you and I were on a panel years ago at South by Southwest, and I, I always remember the statement you made that if you don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu. And that statement has always stuck with me as it's defined. Um, if you're not invited, you're never going to be heard. So uh, why don't you speak to both of those points that Kelly just made? And, you know, how can we how can we combine those two? Well, I think um, a couple things just internally and what we're doing is just our collaboration <laughs> is much deeper um, within our own organization across business groups. Obviously, Microsoft is uh, a just a massive organization. We've got our research group. We have our um, worldwide health group and then our U.S. health group. So just really coming together as an organization um, you know, we've created a COVID response site just for us internally so that we can help triage as well as creating one for customers so that they can join and share with one another what they're doing. Um, so that's something we're doing internally, which I just have seen really accelerate. The other thing is just we're working with other technology companies, um, you know, across competitors, et cetera, with Google, with Facebook, with Apple, with Amazon, you know, it doesn't, from, you know, it doesn't matter uh, at this point. Our, our goal really is to improve um, what's going on in, in, in the healthcare world, in the world. Um, and then the other thing that we're doing, I think, is really moving outside of IT. And this is something I'm incredibly passionate about and in having those conversations with the frontline health workers, with the nurses, with the phys physicians, with the respiratory therapists and getting their input. Um, it's so critical. And I, and I always say this, but they must be involved in the design development and deployment of the solutions in order for them to be successful. Um, 
I used to say implementation, but I went, I, I changed that to, to deployment. Sounds better with the three Ds. Um, anyway, so that's, you know, I think that's how our business is rapidly changing. Um, the other thing is, and I didn't mention this before, just, you know, we're working not only across tech companies, but then across uh, different industries. So we're working right now with the Allen Institute, along with the Chan Zuckerberg uh, group and Georgetown University and Microsoft um, and Kegel looking to um, release the, uh, uh, it's called the, and I'm going to read it because I'm, I wasn't involved with it. It's called the Open Research, the COVID Open Research Dataset, CORD-19. It's a free resource with over 29,000 scholarly articles, including 13,000 with full text about COVID-19 and the corona coronavirus family of viruses for use by the global research community. And that was just announced a few days ago by the White House. So just seeing these new partnerships um, come into play, I think is critical, not just for this particular virus, but quite frankly, to really transform the health system. And I, you know, I love what you're talking about. I think that there's an open sense of communication and a pulling together of community in a way that we're seeing in this crisis that typically doesn't in, that in, in our healthcare vertical. In my own experience, being a, a, the first nurse and the first clinician in a, in, a, in a healthcare IT company, it's been a really interesting um, process to engage, translate the world of technology to the front line. And, and here, um, you know, we've been colleagues for a long time on the, on the front lines uh, to see how nurses can be done differently. And, and you guys have actually spoken to all the questions that we have, so I'm going to get ready to tee up from Maria to take some of the questions from the audience. But before we transition on to those questions, my question to you is, is how is nursing, basically your education as a nurse, prepared you to manage this time differently? That this experience as a nurse put into the roles that you are, why is it being valued and how is it being valued at your healthcare institution? Um, because I think as we just had that last conversation, a seat at the table is very important. But Kim, your position is the first formal position in the history of Massachusetts General Hospital to put a nurse in the forefront of basically directing innovation. How did that come to be? What does that role look like? And, and tell me why the institution of Massachusetts General Hospital recognized the value as a nurse in that role. Well, I think, you know, MGH has always been uh, very innovative in everything they do. And we have, we worked, I actually worked part-time to really build out some of these ideas from nurses. And I think it's gained a lot of credibility and traction and the leadership has seen what, what nurses can actually do. And so it, it's just been such a wonderful journey. Um, in fact, you know, the nurses, the chief nurses and associate chief nurses are taking care of the entire hospital operations. And so it's amazing to see them do that. And, you know, we're, my training is that I think nurses are just very flexible. You know, I can go here, I can triage. Oh yeah, sure, I'll teach this, I'll do that. And I mean, that's who we are and we're not afraid to do it. We're not afraid to jump in. And oh, by the way, I have all these ideas to take care of. And you know, my direct boss says, oh, you are just, you just love problems. I don't know if I love this problem, but I, I think the problems are, you know, we can, we're problem solvers. And, you know, if we can do it through innovation, it is amazing. And we, it's very tactical and just very real. And it really makes an impact. And Molly, we'd love to, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, build a relationship because I, I so agree with you. Everyone needs to be around that table giving, giving us um, their right. ideas. I'm saying, Molly, why don't you take it next then? You know, how, how does Microsoft see the role of nursing within their own institution? Sure. So I think, um, quite frankly, as I mentioned before, we were, Microsoft grew up as an engineering organization, um, as an IT organization. And really, I, you know, I've been at Microsoft almost seven years. I've been in health tech for about 20. Um, so I've always just kind of pushed my way <laughs> <laughs> to the table, I always tell people that I have an older brother, so, you know, look out. Um, but I think with, with Microsoft, just the investment we've made in the past three years in the industry um, resources, so bringing, uh, you know, my, my colleague Kathleen McGrow um, comes from Phillips, and she's a wonderful a resource and our CNIO. Um, we have actually a nurse in our um, 
research group who does user design, which is so important. Um, and just for, for Microsoft to recognize and realize the importance of the input of nurses, of physicians, actually, and not just within the healthcare industry, but as we look to other industries that we're working in, for example, financial services, um, you know, uh, federal, et cetera, um, having those individuals and groups with that experience coming from that industry to really help guide our strategy. Um, you know, this year we're doing a big push around um, Year of the Nurse and Midwife. We're very excited. We didn't expect it to start off like this. Um, but just working with different organizations um, like ANA as well as Sanseal, just to really elevate the importance of the work that we're doing and will be doing. Um, I know that also working with um, the See You Now podcast that Shauna Butler is doing has been fantastic. We've actually created our own very quick podcast, five to seven minutes around Year of the Nurse. So I think just bringing this to the table um, and not being afraid um, and asking the questions. I remember one of my managers a few years ago, actually, when I worked uh, for Philips said, you can't get what you don't ask for. So that's, you know, words of wisdom to live by. And I think that, you know, now is our time. You know, and I, I maybe as this whole thing transcends, you know, the role for more physicians and nurses and everyone to take a seat at the table within healthcare companies has a tremendous amount of impact going forward. And Kelly, it's been a long time. I know you've been on the early front sides of these things. And, um, you know, BD, you know, seems to have a really good understanding on the, the medical device side, why nurses play such an important role. And if you could speak to that on, on how you understand that and why it's become so central to some of the work that you guys are doing um, for the audience to understand how a medical device company is working with nurses to basically improve the delivery systems and the products that you're bringing to market. Yeah, I, I think I'm fortunate enough and very thankful to work in the role that I have. Um, I am also supported by leadership and other clinician leaders, um, which has made this possible. Um, for the last two or three years, BD has been pursuing prioritization of nursing through our nursing activation initiative, and that involves multiple channels. And it um, it includes um, forging relationships that are meaningful, practical, and mutually beneficial um, to patients and nurses alike with organizations such as Santiel, the American Nurses Association, and HIMSS. Um, we very much appreciate and want to make sure we're addressing needs of all nursing, what I'll call personas. A nurse is not a nurse is not a nurse. Even a bedside nurse is different from care uh, delivery area to care delivery area. Working on a med search floor is not the same as working in an ICU. Same for um, nurses that work more in informatics or the IT side of the house, which I was also fortunate enough to do in um, my career at MD Anderson in the CIO's office. But um, I think it's, it's a great time to be a nurse. I would also say, you know, this, this challenge that we're in currently um, relies upon the on the ingenuity and the innovative mindset of nurses more than ever. And we wanna to continue to support that. We're announcing our next winners of the ANA Innovation Awards powered by BD next week. Um, I'm super excited for the nursing and the healthcare community to learn more about our award winners. It's gonna be super amazing. Um, but I think what I'd like to close with um, is two things. One, I think your initial question Kelly, I think we just lost you right there. So when Kelly joins back in, why don't we, uh, Maria, can you go ahead and put forward some of the questions that we're having from the audience at this point in time? So one of the first questions is, are any states mobilizing senior level nursing students at both the AD and BSN levels to fill the bottom of the staff and matrix to provide base basic care to known COVID-19 units? Kim, do you have any knowledge into this space right now and what we're thinking? I don't, although um, I do know there's lots of planning and discussion around um, who do we bring back in to the, to the bedside if the surge really does, in fact, take place. But I don't know what the, you know, what the results are. 
And I know yesterday the White House just removed restrictions between states so that nurses could easily move between states and pick up shifts alongside doctors. I don't know if that applied to nurse practitioners as well to free up the workflow. We also know that in the United Kingdom, there was a movement that basically just fast-tracked all the whole bunch of what we would consider CNA, certified nursing assistants, into being nurses to care by the bedside. And there is in Italy, we just saw an announcement that they just activated 10,000 medical students to basically serve on the front lines to do these treatments. I think what we realize at this point in time is that going forward, the ability to be flexible by the declaration of a national emergency, it removes restrictions both from licensure and also scope of practice that allows for greater expansion and use of resources that we have. In our communities, um, Both uh, we've set up a large Facebook group called Nurses-COVID-19 Information. We're seeing nurses across the country asking how they can get back to the bedside, how they can triage. They don't know EPIC, they don't know EMRs, they don't know research, they don't know a lot of these things. How can we engage with these nurses is um, the average age of the nurse in the United States is 50, 70% of our workforce is over the age of 40, and we have 4 million nurses in the United States currently, which compares to about 1 million physicians. So um, at this point in time, we know that nearly up to 1 million nurses are not by the bedside. And the question becomes, how can we get them ready? And I, I, I think, you know, um, Hiram, you did mention you guys have some kind of new tr training program that's in place. Is that correct? So there's a refresher course for anyone that's left the critical care arena to come back in and be retrained. Um, but what you've just said too, uh, we're looking at our nursing students and medical students and mobilizing them as well. And, you know, um, so I think that everything is on the table. The other, the other thing that I've been thinking about, too, is how we can really utilize our school nurses uh, in this environment. And I know I follow Robin Kogan on, on Twitter. We haven't met personally, but um, just looking at all the fabulous work that our school nurses do and thinking about the, um, that particular association and, and how we can loop them in, even as a, you know, a, a triage, perhaps, um, a resource for, you know, parents and families. So that's another thought. And I, you know, I'm not aware of exactly what we're doing around um, the licensure, but my license is current. So sign me <laughs> And I do know that as of yesterday, friends of mine who were part of the medical emergency system were both activated to New York and also San Francisco. So we're seeing a call up of the reserve system of the healthcare system. Um, and something different also is that we know that the military and National Guard also are on the backup along those lines. And when that activates, that does change the way that nursing is practiced um, at that level. Um, Maria, what other questions do we have from the audience? Um, another one is, what are the remaining tech gaps that have been identified? What's missing? Kelly, um, I think that you could you identify one or two that you're dealing with, the tech gaps that you're dealing with within your industry, specifically on the, the medication and, and directions that you're going forward with that? Um, I, I think it's integration of systems because um, all, all of us here work um, with multiple systems in healthcare uh, delivery. There's an average of eight systems used at a bedside at any given time. So I think being able to integrate, um, not just with the EMR, but other systems, as well as even things like um, admissions, discharge and transfers, or even things like chronos so that we know staffing and who's where, when, um, I think that's something that's very important. I think being able to ensure data robustness is also something, and I'm, I'm really answering this from a healthcare provider perspective. Um, I think being able to, to have a robustness to your data and meaning to the data sets that you might utilize when looking for trends or opportunities to improve care, those are, are really two areas that I would highlight. Thank you. Pam? And I would like to add, well, I would like to add that, and I think that we, the, the medical community or the hospital system has to recognize that we're not going to solve all the problems in the gaps. And so how do we create a pathway to really fast track some of this adoption and bringing them in and working on interoperability and stuff. So I think that's going to be very important too. Molly, anything to add there? Um, yeah, I think some of the areas that we're looking at beyond, you know, the health bot and the communication really are the data and analytics and how can we, you know, with the health bot giving those analytics right back um, real time to, to our customers, um, but then also thinking about 
how we can help with um, patient flow, bed capacity management, as well as supply chain, chain management. Those are kind of um, some areas that we're looking at as well right now. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I know that interoperability is definitely a system we look at as well. So, Mario, what other questions are you, are, are you seeing? Um, do you know if there is an available antibody titer to check for COVID-19 antibodies in patients who think they may have already had COVID-19 earlier in the year before the World Health Organization declared the pandemic? Many who had it or who had mild or severe symptoms at the time were told that it was influenza without testing. Now they're wondering in retrospect if it was COVID-19. Does anyone feel qualified to speak to that issue at this point on this panel? So I think that the, the question is very valid. Um, I think that the, the answer to that question is it is inconclusive at this point in time. And unfortunately, I, I think that there's scientists out there that are exploring the answers and how we're going to deal and navigate that. I think that one thing we can say is that one of the things we don't have anybody on pharma represented, we plan on having a webinar coming up with some leaders in pharma industry to talk about the drug development and things that are going on on the forefront for treatment and diagnosis, is we know that there is a lot of positive information that's coming out. And there's a lot of information that was rapidly developing and deployment in a way that we haven't seen before. So very hopeful that that's going to come. Mario, what about the next question then? Um, actually, the next one is perfect to what you just said. How can pharma better partner with nurses, institutions, and other strategic suppliers in this unique environment? Hiam, do you want to take that point first? This is a challenging uh, one. I, like <laughs> um, I think any collaboration from any, from any of the team um, we could, we really could use our help. I know, again, uh, I know the institution itself is working on a lot of the pharma and the testing and um, trying to rapidly get vaccines out and stuff. But, you know, I, I think if we all came together, all mm -hmm. farmers and stuff and really coordinated our efforts and we can really expand and move much faster. And I think that we know for a long time, pharma hasn't been focused on it. There hasn't been extensive research done into antiviral or antibacterial treatment. Um, we're very low, and I can say this as a nurse from the bedside, I always felt like I didn't have enough in my warehouse to fight infection um, because the drugs that were developed were not able to treat infection. They were often pharma drugs. We're looking for a lot of daily use of a large or small-scale population. And I, I think that this virus and, and this ch uh, challenge that we're facing creates a, a greater conversation of how are we going to, in the future, Future with pharma, work to develop antivirals and antibacterials for situations like this so that we can treat the infections and viruses that we're seeing. And Kelly and Molly, do you have any thoughts about how pharma could step in and, and work with them at this point in time as well? I, I certainly do. And we work with a whole host of life science companies, um, you know, around the globe. Um, I'm just going to give you an example of one partnership that we're working on with Takeda and Eurodis, looking at decreasing the time to uh, rare disease um, diagnosis. So really looking to use technology to speed up that uh, typical average seven years to diagnosis. And I say that because we, we, we do have a partnership with Takeda and many other pharma companies, but I think there are two areas that, you know, from a technology perspective, we can help. One is um, time to diagnosis. And then secondly, really thinking more along the lines of personalized medicine um, and um, really targeting therapies, quite frankly, whether it's viral or cancer therapies, et cetera, um, because we're not all cut from the same cloth. Great. Kelly, any last thoughts on that? Yeah, a couple. I think, first of all, we have to expand our um, awareness and our inclusion if we're going to solve problems and solve them quickly. So I would say, let's not just limit this to a supplier mentality, but from a partnership and a collaboration mentality first. Second, I would say we, it takes a village. So we need to identify academics, associations, organizations that can help us all collaborate and, and share the load of getting things to market quickly in a way that's meaningful. The, the second point I wanna make, um, and it's just really tying on to what um, the other panelists were saying is part of the, the, um, the benefit and, and the availability of medication is our ability to have that medication ready to go. And I'm really speaking from a pharmacy inventory um, management perspective, but it's empowering pharmacists 
with the ability to um, mix the medication in a safe, reliable manner, not have it outside of a refrigerator if it needs to be refrigerated. It's, it's in a, being able to predict the demand based on orders and trends and admitting diagnosis, et cetera. And then for the nurses to have some visibility to that, when's my medication actually gonna be here? So those are some things I, I don't wanna be redundant um, to what my colleagues have provided, but those would be two um, areas that I would further emphasize. Thank you, Kelly. Maria, what is our next question? I know we're coming down on the hour here. Yes, thank you, everybody. Great question. So um, what are some of the lessons that are being learned and implemented in the U.S. health system, either from previous SARS outbreaks or even more recently, the lessons learned from the approaches that have worked overseas? Kim, what are you seeing, if anything, that's coming across? Well, um, you know, we Mass General is one of 10 biothreat hospitals in the United States. And we've been preparing for over 10 years. And so there's all, they also have developed a toolkit that they have shared widely and globally with other people. But boy, there's still a lot um, to learn. There's still a lot to learn because as concerns come up, questions come up that we haven't heard before. So let's say the public transit closes down and then our, our you know, the majority of our staff are on public transit. What do you do? We don't have enough parking. Um, you know, when, when the um, child care centers have closed, you know, we're trying to negotiate with Bright Horizons, which will remain open for caregivers. I mean, there's just so much to learn. Um, and so I think, I think that's where we are. But I think this has really tested everything that we thought we knew or thought we planned. And so I think that we'll have a lot to share after this. And so, uh, Molly, what have you learned from people that you've been hearing? You were talking about Australia, you know, some of these, the partnership, I'm sure we know you're in China. What did you also have learned as it was coming out of there? What have you or anything from past SARS? What did anything pull through that you're like, thank goodness we had access to this information from the global community so that we could start looking at things differently? Well, I think, you know, I feel lucky to work for a global organization where, you know, quite frankly, we have offices around the globe. So, um, you know, we had travel restrictions as well as work from home restrictions fairly early, not just um, with what we saw happening in China uh, as well as uh, Italy, but really, uh, quite frankly, what has happened in the Seattle area where our headquarters is. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier in our webcast today, the first patient came to Providence St. Joseph. Um, and so thinking about um, just the area out there and talking with my colleagues. I know one of my colleagues said he lives two miles from the nursing home where many of the patients unfortunately passed away. Um, so I think from having that global purview uh, that Microsoft does have is definitely an advantage and not just sharing that with our own internal employees, but quite frankly, sharing that information and knowledge with the rest of the US as well as really the rest of the world. And Kelly, anything that you learned from abroad that you guys are recognizing has a lot of uh, significance in the current way that you're managing the system and you're still on mute, there you go. Thank you. Um, I would say that in, in just listening to this question, it brought back memories because I actually cared for patients with SARS when I was at MD Anderson Cancer Center. and I remember feeling unarmed. So I very much relate to kind of the unknown unknowns that are out there. Um, but of course you wanna provide the best possible information. I think getting information that is as accurate and as validated as you can get it, knowing that information is going to change as we continue through this journey is really something that we can arm our direct care providers, our leaders with. That's a lesson learned from the trenches many moons ago, um, not necessarily my BD experience. I think what I can relay to the audience from my BD experience, and, and this is something that we're hearing within healthcare in a time of high transformation anyway, but it's very applicable to this situation as well. Molly mentioned earlier that supporting the success of implementation. I think what we're seeing not only is just reinforcing that as new processes, technology emerge, we have to provide the training and the infrastructure and the support to not only um, ensure a successful implementation of those technologies, but also the successful adoption and acceptance of them. Because it takes quite a while for these things in present day practice when things are business as usual, 
to um, recognize success, but it's really important that we fortify and support um, our clinician colleagues in these endeavors going forward in a time of rapid change and, and information. Right, right. Yeah. Maria, last question that we have on the, the, from the audience. Last question. Um, what suggestions do you have to help give frontline nurses a voice within their specific healthcare organization during this pandemic? Molly, words from the street, what would you tell them? Um, just kind of from my heart, I would say don't, you know, you know, even if you're not in a leadership role, use your voice in a positive, uh, empathetic way to quite frankly, advocate for your patients, but also then advocate for your fellow healthcare workers, whether it's the uh, environmental services, or it's the unit secretary or a physician, um, really using your voice in a way that, um, is positive and brings attention to what the problem is and then potentially what could be a resolution in in the short term. And I think it's so important, you know, nurses are so well poised to, uh, as I said in that panel three years ago, make stuff happen. Um, so I think that you know, we are on the front lines, not me per se, but nurses, and we are ready and willing, as Hiam said earlier, to, to make it happen. Excellent advice. Kelly, what would the advice be to the nurses in the trenches? I think own your power would be my first advice. Um, I'm reiterating what Molly said, but I don't think we can say it enough. Nurses are the largest group of clinicians in, in the healthcare market. In the US, there's 4 million RNs. That doesn't include LPNs, LVNs, advanced practice nurses. We have the power. Don't be afraid to take leadership roles. Don't be afraid to go up and around if needed your chain. You're doing right by your patients. You're doing right by your nursing community. Also engage other clinicians to help support and that you can help support our medical technologists, our pharmacists, colleagues, our physicians, um, even folks in supply chain, HR and legal right now, they're all there and willing to help. Um, I think nurses are natural leaders. You'll hear me say that time and again, but we lead not only as advocates um, for our patients and their families, but also for care delivery execution. So own, your, own that power and um, we'll get through it. Yeah. The only other thing, they said it beautifully, but the only other thing that I would, in my experience, has really worked is to be around the table, to actually volunteer to do things, take on projects and be there, and things will happen organically when that happens. And you know, my last advice, because you know, these three women are, are some of the greatest nursing minds that we have in leadership roles in the United States today, is that don't be scared to act. Don't believe that somebody else is going to take the lead, that they're going to do it, that there isn't it. We as nurses are excellent at identifying problems, but we often have felt disempowered to be able to act to create those solutions. This is not the time to sit back and let somebody else solve those uh, solutions or provide those solutions. It's your time to act. And the truth is, is this is exactly what we need right now, is we need more nurses taking action to solve the problems that they're seeing so that we can get through this crisis together. Ladies, it was an honor, a pleasure. Please thank your institutions that allowed you to come on to this uh, webinar, as I know that it was a lot of questions by your institutions to allow permission to have you speak publicly, dealing with navigating the COVID-19 crisis. To each of you, be safe. Thank you for being here and representing the best you can be today and in the future. To all of you in the audience, thank you for participating with us this week for our next webinar as we continue to navigate and learn together to challenging situation of COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you so much. Um, and just a last note, thank, thank you all you. for attending. Feel free to reach out with any other questions that you may have to webinars at optimizerx.com and we will be happy to direct your questions to the appropriate party within our team. Um, again, Kelly, Hiam, Rebecca, Molly, Thank you. Thank you so much.